Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest on With Respect is Tom Castleman. Tom is a trial lawyer from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He is the author of a new book, I Talk, You Walk. Now, I've heard that one before, uh, but um, we're going to hear the author of that, of that phrase. Tom Castleman, with respect. Tom, how are you this morning? I'm fine, thank you. Pleasure to be on your show. Well, great to have you. Tom, I've uh, known you by reputation. I think I've met you once very briefly before I saw you at a book signing uh, up at the Snowbound Books up in Marquette, uh, a great bookstore. I, I just um, I love that place. It was wonderful. Now, Tom, first, first question for anybody in this show is, where are you from originally? Royal Oak, Michigan. From where? Royal Oak? Royal Oak. That's down by Detroit. How did it you is. end up, well, we'll get to how you got up in the Upper Peninsula, but where'd you go to school? I went to, it no longer exists, Royal Oak on Darrell High School. Uh, what, has it been merged into something else? I think it has. There's only one high school now in Royal Oak. I think it's Kimball. Well, a friend of mine teaches at Shrine High School in Three Oaks. And, uh, and loves it. She's an English teacher, and uh, she has a fascinating uh, way of teaching literature. For example, when she was had her high school students uh, t talking about Solzhenitsyn's uh, uh, books, uh, she wanted to make them understand what it was like to be in the Gulag Archipelago, uh, and she had the kids take their bare feet, no, no coats, and for about 15 minutes, hike around in a circle out in the cold in the, in the middle of winter uh, so that they would appreciate what it was to, uh, to suffer the cold and to the indignities of having just to be at someone else's beck and call. But I thought, it was kind of, I thought that was kind of original, an interesting way of, an interesting way of teaching. So um, did you start off wanting to be an author? Did you start off wanting to be a lawyer? Did you start off wanting to be a baseball player or what? Well, I started off wanting to be in the FBI. And the FBI said you had to be five feet, seven inches tall. And for three years in law school, I slept on boards <laughs> to make sure that I could stretch myself. And sure enough, at the physical exam, I was exactly what you had to be, five feet, seven. The difficulty was now I learned I was colorblind. I could no longer be in the Air Force. I couldn't be in the FBI, so I had to be a lawyer. Good grief. That's depressing. Well, before then, I was a special ed teacher in uh, junior high school, 
and that was a fun activity, I'll tell you. What, what, what did you do? Tell me about uh, special ed teaching, because I, I have a uh, former sister-in-law who is a special ed teacher. I know a number of special ed teachers. Terrifically challenging. At the University of Michigan in my undergraduate program, the original major was history, and then I had a second major, education, and then I had a specific major, and that was special education. My mother was a special ed teacher. She was a homebound teacher, which meant if you couldn't go to school, she visited your house. Um, my dad was a hearings uh, referee for the unemployment compensation, and I tried to please them both, become a teacher for my mother and a lawyer for my dad, but special ed was sandwiched in between the graduate school and the undergraduate school for a year. I taught um, in the junior high school, uh, type A handicapped kids, those who would someday be able to likely uh, provide for themselves, but they were slow at learning. What did that do for you? Well, one of the things that, that was pleasing to me was there were 30 kids and to handle 30 kids who are individuals in a regular classroom, teachers complain about the size of the classroom. If you have 30 kids who are individually handicapped and you have no teaching assistance, it is uh, six to eight hours a day of more than babysitting because I wanted to educate these kids. And fortunately, two of them appeared to me that there was more than um, a problem with their mental acuity, and it, I had them go visit regular classrooms, and they progressed. And we learned after giving them hearing tests that they were deaf. Oh, they weren't handicapped. And so we got them into the regular school program, and uh, it, I was pleased to learn they graduated from high school just with their regular class. You know, so, so I've seen that so much that... that um, People who are gifted in, in, in areas uh, that you uh, are amazing scientifically, mathematically, but their social skills or some undetected physical handicap uh, uh, causes either a school system or even the parents to think that they're uh, somehow subnormal, and they 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 are they're shunted off, and you wonder how long it uh, it has, and what effect that has had on the child um, to to have those skills, to be fully aware of life going on around them in a in a lively mind, but they're not treated that way. If, you know, there's a there's a case where I'd love to hear someone who, may perhaps like yourself, could talk about what it's what you think it's like, based on your some of your experiences. But moving on, you, you moved on from being a teacher, being wanting to be in an FBI agent or a CIA agent or whatever, and but you ended up going to law school, apparently. How, uh, what happened? In order to be in the FBI, you had to go to law school, so the special ed was just before law school. Mm -hmm. um, I went to law school. Uh, it wasn't the fun-filled activity that I was pretty sure it wasn't going to be. Uh, <laughs> it was tough. The professors announced on the first day when you're being oriented that take a look to, the, to your right. 
and I was on the far right side of the room. So everybody looked at me, and the phraseology was, take a look to the right, because the person sitting next to you is not going to be here next year. Um, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to be. Um, one of the activities that you have to do your very first year is contract law. I just did not get contract law. I knew that you had to give something for something, and that was a contract, and a deal is a deal. Um, but uh, it turned out well because one of the stories in the books it revolves around my contract professor. He and I made a deal. I took the final exam at the end of the year. I knew I wasn't going to do very well. When it was over, I knew I hadn't done very well. I went up to his office where he was grading the exams, and I was pretty sure he must be looking at mine by the look on his face. And he was pretty sure that if I was let loose in society to make contracts, it was going to be problematic <laughs> uh, for people. But I stuck out my hand and I said, look, Professor, I know you're grading my paper, but uh, I'll, I'll make you an offer. If you give me a D so that I can continue in law school, it'll take me two years to finish it, um, and I'll have to get special grades in order to raise that D to the level, but I'll make this deal with you that I won't make contracts. <laughs> I'll do something else. I'll never make one. And he just looked at me and he said, deal. <laughs> and done. We shook hands. Uh, I got my D. I was able to get enough grade level to graduate from the U of M. And one of the stories in the book is about what happened after that with that very same professor. Well, you know, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I used to hire attorneys a lot and uh, as a prosecutor, as a U.S. attorney, and, and I always found that the ones who loved law school, who said that they loved law school, uh, were some of the most misfit people in private in, in the practice of trial law. I just most of the really good ones said, "God, I hated it." Or if the, if they're honest, uh, you have to press them to see what they really believe, because it is a rough grind. It's a it's a horrible, boring process, and it basically. My dad used to tell me he's a lawyer. I'm, I'm, it's a DNA affliction in our firm in our family. Um, a bunch of our people were lawyers. Uh, but he used to say that you don't, in law school, you, you learn to find the law as opposed to, to learning all of the law. It's a growing process. It really is a growing process, I think. Well, I found that you had to know what the law was in order to pass the bar exam, in order to become officially the lawyer. Yeah. The A students generally got to be the judges. <laughs> the B students went into the professional career. They became the prosecutors. And uh, the C students, myself included, became those in the trench. And in order to earn a dollar on the talent or skill that you possess, it wasn't always by reference to the law. It was by reference more to the fact. You know, that's, that's a, an astute observation. Uh, I was, there's another old phrase in the law. If you don't have the law on your side, 
pound on the facts. If you don't have the facts on your side, pound on the table. And if you don't have either the law or the facts on your side, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pound, you end up pounding on the table. But, well, if but, you have the law, you don't have much problem. But right. if you don't have the facts, you've got a real problem. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, there's a great series of, of books that uh, come out of some really good writers, both in America and Britain, about trial law. And one that I think of uh, regularly in that area is the Rumpole of the Bailey series. I don't know if you ever read any of those, uh, John I have. Mortimer. But in that in that series, it, uh, Mortimer, uh, who is who, who was him, pardon me, is himself a uh, renowned uh, and good trial lawyer in a barrister in Britain. Um, he really does emphasize how the facts of a case really can be more meaningful than even the law, or certainly the personalities involved. He's always fighting obnoxious judges and pompous prosecutors, which I, I find to be extremely offensive as far as the prosecutors are concerned. The, the judges are pompous. I agree with that. But uh, the same thing in America. A number of American uh, writers uh, of, of, uh, of uh, legal matters uh, do emphasize the unique things about each case, the factual basis. And your book talks about just that, uh, how each of these cases that you dealt with, and it's, we can, we're going to talk about the cases uh, in some, some fashion a little bit later, but each of them are very fact-oriented. That is, that each individual ca case or person has uh, uh, a, a, a social issue, which really means something. And, you know, it's up to you, their lawyer, to make that come out, right? Well, oftentimes the lawyer is the only thing that the defendant has other than his investigator. Mm -hmm. The state has the prosecutor mm -hmm. and all of the police and all of the funds and financing available uh, from either the county or the state itself or the U.S. government uh, to pursue that individual. But the individual only has his lawyer himself uh, and what the lawyer and the investigators can find uh, to make uh, a war, a battle of it. Mm -hmm. And so you start out being uh, outnumbered. And the difficulty is if you're going to work for the defense, you have to learn how to take a punch and come back. It's the government who starts out, and they start out hard and fair um, with a lot of blows. You have to be able to take it in the beginning because your turn is until second. Mm -hmm. And uh, to make it fair, the government has two arguments at the end, and you have one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the system um, is not really programmed, although it says... Um, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, it really does matter that you prove something. It's like a tennis match. The first player serves. If the ball is not returned, you're not going to win. So right from the get-go, um, the opening, when you're, when you're talking to the jury, you need to make sure that the jury understands, to the chagrin of the judges often, they don't want you trying your case when you begin the jury selection, but you want a juror who understands your perspective. So you have to, in the beginning, 
select somebody who's going to be helpful for you. Uh, you have to in your opening statements. Some lawyers don't have opening statements. They say they reserve it. Well, that's an opportunity to argue that you're giving up. Mm -hmm. uh, some don't cross-examine witnesses. Well, there are times when it is appropriate not to, but cross-examination is a time to explain to the jury your perspective. So there's always times throughout that trial where the defendant can put facts before the jury, the facts that he sees, the way the defense sees it. Uh, but you don't get facts as a lawyer if you sit in your office, and it's very difficult to be a lawyer and an investigator. So I don't know how um, lawyers in modern practice without investigators get along, and that really was the purpose of the book, to explain how my investigators, my wife and my sister-in-law, they're both women, they're both very good, they've done this for 20 years, they know what they're saying and doing, and they get me the fact that makes me able to progress in a courtroom. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Tom Castleman, who is a trial lawyer uh, par excellence in the Upper Peninsula. I'm going to uh, get back into this area, Tom, about how you present your case to a jury uh, in just when, when we come back. We'll be right back. back with Tom Castleman, uh, trial lawyer, ex lawyer extraordinaire, uh, based mostly, mostly in the state of the upper peninsula of the state of Michigan, but actually tries cases, I believe, everywhere, don't you, Tom? Well, I mean, we try to stay within the confines now of the upper peninsula, but we've been to Wisconsin and lower Michigan. Mm -hmm. Tom, you talked about getting the facts in front of the jury. Now, and you you mentioned a couple of places. First of all, the selection of the jury, and then through cross opening statements, and then finally through cross examination, and of course the famous part of of uh, defensing, I think, is probably the the closing statement where. You, uh, the, the attorneys get a chance to present and maybe even emote about their case. But let's start back at the beginning. Let's talk about picking that jury. What do you look for? What, what is the, the function of a jury, in, in your view, in our system? Well, the function of the, of the jury specifically is to find the fact. Uh, the Ojibwe Indians live here. Uh, we've um, changed that name, Englishized it to Chippewa, but there are reservations in the Upper Peninsula. And the Ojibwe have a saying, the truth is what the people believe. And what trials are about is to find the state of the truth, what happened. The truth is expressed by what the jury says 
in either one or two words. They're either going to say the truth is he's guilty or the truth is he's not guilty, period. So the truth may not exactly be the truth, but it's what that jury believes happens that counts. So they're going to be the individuals who decide what's going to happen to this person. So you want to make sure that those persons um, have a semblance of, of knowledge that, that would help the defendant's position. Uh, in law school, for example, you're taught that each side is looking for a fair and impartial jury. With all due respect, that's not true. The prosecution is looking for someone who is going to adhere to their state of fact. The defendant is looking for someone who's going to listen to and comprehend their state of facts. If you have an automobile accident and there are two witnesses, they're both looking at it from a different position, from different heights. They come from different personalities and different structures. Uh, they may be of different races, of different sects, of different religions. And with all due respect, they see it differently. It isn't that a witness is necessarily not being truthful or lying. It's that they see it from their perspective. Well, if the truth is what the jury is going to tell us, we want to make sure that they see it from our client's perspective and the fact that we can make it sound more convincing is going to be helped by the kind of juror we pick. So we spend a great deal of time selecting a juror. What do you look for? Uh, I, I mean, Tom uh, Lee Bailey is a famous trial lawyer. Yes. Um, had a, a, a an algebra of picking a jury, and he would say, I remember reading one of his books. Uh, uh, well, you certainly don't want to have. For, if you're on the prosecution side, you don't want to have uh, a persecuted minority. Uh, you don't have the Irish because they were persecuted by the British. You don't want to have this. You don't want to have that. And the reverse is true for the defense. And he had this algebra of the various groups. And, you know, I thought at one point you said you don't want Catholics if you're a prosecutor. And I thought, excuse me, when I was teaching in this particular class of uh, prosecutors and assistants, I said, how many are Catholics in this room? The vast majority of them were Catholic. They, it, it, they were, in fact, law enforcement models, or uh, modeled, I guess, or prone. Um, and I thought, well, how does that fit with, with Bailey's theory? What, what, do you have any of those theories? Yes and no. Uh, speaking of Mr. Bailey, one of the stories, uh, the title story, I Talk, You Walk, uh, Mr. Bailey referred the client to us. And one of the phrases that Mr. Bailey uses continuously is, and, and it's our mantra, was the, you don't win. Trials are seldom won in the courtroom. They're won by the side who has sweated and slaved to find the facts before the trial ever begins. So the, the purpose of um, in, in keeping with selecting the jury idea it depends on what's the, the, the crime for which we're defending. If the crime is a um, sex offense, and it's a child, uh, and it's a female ch child, 
you have on one hand a theory that says this is a father um, who is a proposed juror. He's not going to like this situation. This is a mother as a proposed juror. She's not going to like this situation. So there are circumstances where you want to say to know, are you married? Do you have children? You need to hear from the people, not just yes and no answers. Uh, we always have the persons talk. A great number of lawyers love to talk. And so they give lectures to the jury. And at the end in their jury selection, they say, uh, does everybody understand? The jury nods their head appropriately and says, is everybody going to be fair and impartial? Everybody nods their head appropriately. Well, the difficulty with that is you don't know anything about those particular jurors. So we say, as you did when you started the program here, tell me about yourself. Where are you from? How many kids do you have? Did you go to school? Have you ever had a drink and driven your car? Did you ever witness something that, uh, for example, the, the cookie jar is broken and your child says, not me, I didn't do it. In the usual circumstances, it was the kid who did it. But sometimes it's the dog whose tail brushed the cookie jar. And the kid is telling the truth, I really didn't do it. So you want to know people who have had experiences. Uh, when we select juries, uh, we want to know people who have had a chance to experience what it is that the defendant is charged with. Um, I've had experiences. I used to teach defensive bike riding, if you can imagine that. Mm -hmm. Defensive bike riding is you're riding a pedal bike, and something happens. Um, the dog runs out and attacks you. It's going to bite your ankles while you're pedaling. How do you do that? What do you do? Well, you stop, you get off your bike, you turn your front wheel at right angles, you use that front tire as a shield, you can move that bike around in a circle and the dog can't get through the shield and becomes frustrated. I taught that circumstance. We're riding down the road in a neighborhood in the community, and sure as heck, coincidentally, a dog came out. And he was biting at me, and I went through the whole ritual, and everybody was standing around saying, isn't that clever? Wonderful teacher, told us all how to do it. And then I saw the gentleman from the house, 50 feet away, open the screen door and walk down the driveway, and he's carrying a shotgun. <laughs> and he, uh, he approached with the shotgun, and if you've ever heard a shotgun pumped, it's a sound you never forget. Yeah, that's right. He pumped the shotgun. He's now 10 feet away. And the look in his eyes caused me to say, gee, I hope that gun's for the dog. You finally had it. This dog is biting too many people. You're going to make trouble for the dog. And he said, no, the gun's for you. <laughs> and leveled it. <laughs> in those kinds of circumstances, you want people who have been, maybe, in that kind of difficulty. So you never know... You, you won't know unless you ask them. Yeah. And they have to talk to you. Well, that's, now that you've picked a jury um, and the the judge says, okay, counsel, have you both agreed upon a jury? And the prosecutor says yes. You say yes. Now they're in the box, the 12 or the 6, felony or misdemeanor. And now the judge says, gentlemen, what do you have to say? prosecutor gets up and gives a, 
a stirring opening statement about uh, how the victim was brutalized by this defendant. Now, what do you, where do you go from there? Well, you have two times that you can address the jury, really. The, they call it an opening statement, but if you're really good at defending, you make that an opening argument, and there is a difference. A statement is you're supposed to, in the beginning, tell the judge and the jury what it is that you expect the evidence to show. You're not quite sure, maybe, but you expect the evidence to be the following. So you're laying out a plan, uh, a table of contents. This is chapter one, this is chapter two, and this is three. And at the end of this trial, we expect the evidence to show. And as such, we're going to ask you for a particular result. The government generally says they want you to convict someone. We tell them that we want you to find the truth of this matter. The, the closing argument is a little different. The closing argument is you now know what the facts are. The, the witnesses have all talked. And it may be different than what you proposed the circumstance were going to be or thought the evidence would show. But we have a, a theme, and the theme is always used whether you're selecting a juror it's always used whether you're cross-examining. It's always used whether you're opening, and it's always used when you're clothing, closing. One of the things that we talk about is if the matter is assaultive, and it may be self-defending, a circumstance, for example, you would ask a juror, have you ever been lion hunting? The juror says, generally, no. Never been lion hunting. Well, then you give them a little piece, a little story about if you go lion hunting and you shoot at a lion and you hit it, you keep shooting until the lion doesn't move anymore or until the gun is empty because there's nothing like a wounded lion. Mm -hmm. So you tell them in the beginning, have you ever gone lion hunting in a jury selection? And at the end of the story, you make it look like this was a lion hunt. Aha. Uh -huh. So, you st your theme starts from the beginning of the trial, and it flows all the way through to your closing argument. And this Absolutely. Is, but in the middle, you've got this the crucial part, what is all we on television, they always say is the crucial part, is the testimony, the examination, and especially the cross-examination of witnesses. And... Before I talk about that, we're going to take a break, and I want to come back. When we come back, I want to talk about this, uh, the value of the examination and cross-examination of witnesses when it comes to the eventual outcome of a trial. We're talking to Tom Castleman, trial lawyer, author, from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We'll be right back.
We are now back with Tom Castleman, trial lawyer extraordinaire and author about his life and his work and his the people and events he's come in contact with through the law in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Tom, when we broke, you had just begun to talk about this theme, or you, you developed the theme that you were going to be presenting uh, to a jury to get them basically to understand your side of the story. But the judge is going to instruct the jury that uh, arguments mean nothing, that opening statements are supposed to be simply summaries of what the attorneys believe the evidence is going to show. But what really they have to make their decision on is two things. Number one, the testimony and evidence that they see and hear. And number two, most importantly, the judge's instructions. Now, where do you see, however, this examination and cross-examination of witnesses fitting into this picture? It's vital. It's absolutely vital. Um, let me talk first about direct examinations. That's what the lawyers are asking of their own witnesses. And the questions differ. The, the style of questioning differs. When we have a witness who is going to testify, a defendant, for example, we go with that defendant to a courtroom, and we have the defendant practice. They sit in the chair. I practice talking to that witness, telling them what I'm going to say, and they give an answer. We go back to the office. We discuss whether or not that answer is the correct answer, not whether it's truthful. It's always to be truthful. You cannot knowingly permit a witness, especially your own client, to tell something that you know to be untruthful. But there are ways in which the witness can say the truth that are more convincing than others. So we write out our questions. Everything from, may I have your name, please, and what is your address, and how old are you, and how many children do you have, all the way through to, now tell us what happened on May 2nd. In the direct examination, the lawyer is only allowed to ask his witness who, what, when, where, why, and how. How did it happen? Who was involved? When did it happen? You cannot help the witness to answer. You can't say, for example, isn't it truthful that? On cross-examination of a witness, however, things change. That's when you can lead the witness. Isn't it true that it happened this way? Didn't you say it that way on that day? And aren't you telling us a different story today? It's a little more argumentative, to use an objectionable phrase, it's a little more argumentative with the witness because it's a one-on-one -on -one fight. We are now in the circumstances where it used to be a joust in the old days, and you ran at each other with shears and uh, shields and spears and horseback. Well, cross-examination is what you do to the other party's witness. And the cross-examination, I write out. I know every question I'm going to ask before I ask it, because the first 12 questions that I ask don't have much meaning. But they're the bowling pins. It's the 13th question or the 6th question that is the bowling ball coming down.
down the alley. That's the one that counts. The witness is to just simply answer the questions. They're not to try to discover strategy. It's the lawyer's job to make strategy. You follow the theme. This witness is going to tell us about what happened at 4 o'clock on that day. It's 6 o'clock that counts. But we need to know a bowling pin because we need to roll the ball at it at about a 6 o'clock event. But we need this witness to tell us what happened at 4 in order to make 6 o'clock question count. So I write them all out. It amazingly helps. Example, the judge, the other lawyer objects. There's a discussion. Everybody's involved, the judge, the witness, the lawyers. Finally, the judge decides, go ahead, you can ask the question. You can answer the question. The witness says, I can't remember the question. <laughs> what was the question? Now comes the point that you write the questions out for, because your finger is held now on that question throughout all the discussion. If you, if you can't remember the question, you lost that jury. You remember that question, and the jury says, that's my boy. I found, I, I was trying a case one time with a very established and fine, fine uh, defense uh, lawyer who used to ask questions in multiples, just uh, four or five questions in one and to confuse the witness. And um, finally, one day, I started objecting to the form of the question, and... <laughs> One of his questions was so complex that after the, the argument, we had exactly the same thing happen. He said, uh, all right, counsel, said the judge, you can ask your question. And he said, I can't remember it. <laughs> but if he had written it down, he might have still had it. <laughs> well, you are able to follow a theme if you have a menu, a transcript, a table of contents. But sometimes, uh, if you don't, then some lawyers are able to just wing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. But if you have it written out, you are following a theme, you know exactly where you are, you know exactly what every witness is likely to say, and you know what you want them to say with cross-examination. Tom, so many people in our society were raised watching Perry Mason on television, in which, uh, in every one of Perry's cases that I know of, except for one, I think, uh, his client was not guilty, and ordinarily uh, there would be someone in the courtroom, in the audience, or the, one of the witnesses who would break down and say, no, 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 the defendant is innocent, I did it. And my question to you is, in your experience, how often does that really happen? In 46 years, once. Really? Well... I, I wish that there was a, uh, a way that we could educate our society, our, our, our prospective jurors, onto what really they should be looking for. Uh, they shouldn't be waiting for the aha moment of someone confessing on the stand, because it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but they should be ready to listen to all the nuances um, of, the, of both sides uh, witnesses and the themes that both sides are putting forward and make that that judgment uh, uh, based on their their community lights their their uh, common sense which is what we all uh, ask for and you talk about the Ojibwa uh, um, mantra 
um, that that also is uh, key. I did see once, I was in the courtroom of one, when one of my assistants tried a case, and it was a pretty tough kid, about 21, 22 years old, who was charged with burglary. And one of my assistants, who was superb at cross-examination and at uh, closing argument, um, was sitting, sat in his chair the whole time, looked at the jury the whole time, never looked at the defendant, never raised his voice. But his questions were so well-crafted that finally the kid literally stood up and said, okay, all right, I did it. And you know what? I did the Jones house and the Smith house too. Terrific. And I sat there and I couldn't, and the defense attorney had his hands in his, uh, around his head and just kept shaking his head. And I thought to myself, that is the ultimate. I've seen it personally right in court. <laughs> that was the only time. I've never been able to do it. No, it only happened one time. Tom, when you're when you are dealing with an adverse witness, a tough witness, some, you know, a cop who's gonna who's on his game, or uh, a, a victim who is just uh, she's really upset and she's really sharp. How do you deal with it when you finally come to the point, or do you ever come to the point and you say, "I'm in as deep as I can get. I got to get out of here somehow. I've got to stop." doing what I'm doing because it isn't working. Well, there's that old adage, uh, when you're in a hole, stop digging. <laughs> yeah. The, yes, there is often the opportunity where the, the policeman is a very practiced witness. He's been here a hundred times. But you know that going in because your investigators uh, have to looked at the police report. They tell you who the operator, the officer is going to be. They tell you what's the victim like. They tell you these things, and it is their job in the beginning to go out and talk to these people. Mm -hmm. Interview them. You'd be surprised how many lawyers don't go and interview the, the state's witnesses. Mm -hmm. You'd really be surprised how many times the state doesn't interview the defendant's witnesses. Mm -hmm. There is no longer trial by ambush. In the old days, you didn't have to tell each other who was going to be your witnesses. Mm -hmm. And in modern practice, Everybody knows there's no longer trial by ambush. Go out and interview the people. So the first war on having the tough witness is, the first battle is, find out what that witness is going to say. Find out what their attitude is about. Have your investigator talk to them. Come back, report to you what it is that this witness has a value to say and what it is that this witness simply wants to lecture the jury about. Don't trans uh, trespass on the area that is going to hurt you. You only ask questions about the area that is going to be helpful. When the juror, or excuse me, the witness wants to then go to that area where it's hurting you, um, and you haven't asked the question, there's always the, Your Honor, would you please ask the witness to answer my questions? And you say to the, sometimes to the witness, for example, what is it about my question that you don't understand? Because you don't seem to want to answer it. Here's my question again. You lose if you get in a debate with a witness. Because the judge is going to be very cautious and protective of the witness. So the objective is not to debate with the witness, but simply to let the jury see that the witness is an uncontrolled, loose cannon. Mm -hmm. And rolling about the deck. And therefore, her judgment, or whatever it is that she saw originally, 
is subject to being a loose cannon rolling about the deck. Um, Tom, let, let me get to your book, because so many of the points that you are making here are found in the various stories that you tell in your book. Uh, now, each of them, first of all, uh, is a separate, each chapter is a separate vignette, a separate uh, case that you were involved in, I take it. And uh, you give great credit uh, to Rhonda, uh, called Goodwin in the book, uh, Rhonda Castleman, who is your wife and investigator. And as you said, you also your sister-in-law is, is another uh, investigator. Um, but how did, how did this book come about? I mean, did you just, did somebody just say, oh, Tom, you had such a fascinating career, write it. Or did you want to use this as a, as a teaching moment, I suppose? Rhonda and I decided uh, 10, 15 years back that we were, it was time to retire. And so we retired. We didn't like it. <laughs> we did everything that we planned to do in the first <laughs> year that was supposed to take 10. And so board, we went to Phoenix, Arizona, in the worst part of the slum district, uh, bought a 40-unit hotel and changed it from uh, a drug environment where nobody could uh, live peacefully to a place where mothers and kids and husbands and wives uh, had a good time, but everybody carried guns, and we had that circumstance. Uh, there was adventure. And then we said, well, we've had all kinds of adventure. Well, we had an experience running a hotel in a drug environment and cleaning it up, and it was an adventure. And we said, um, Let's write a story a year about cases that we were involved in just so grandchildren or family members can have an idea of what really happened. Uh, maybe even somebody in the old community would be interested in what happened in that case, really, you know, behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's what we wrote 10 years ago, first stories. And began to say, no, there's a principle that we could do here. The principle is each one of these stories should tell somebody something about the law that they would always wanted to know about but didn't quite know who to ask or how to ask, and then make that principle entertaining. So some of the stories are the difference between how prosecutors charge people with a grand jury or the prosecutor's information system. Uh, some of them are how you select a jury. So each story has a purpose in entertainingly telling you something about the law. All right, I want to take a break right now uh, and then come back and finish talking about your book and, and the, the cases and people involved. But we're talking to Tom Castleman, a trial lawyer. The Upper Peninsula's most renowned trial lawyer, probably. And we'll be right back.
We're now back with Tom Castleman, trial lawyer on the Upper Peninsula and author, and telling us about how he got to start writing these uh, fascinating stories. Tom, I've got to ask you this. I mean, I, I have not read in depth the entire book, but I have gone through every story, and I find people whom I know, by name mentioned, and others whom I'm thinking, that's a pseudonym, but I know who he's, I'm guessing who he's talking about. Are all, first of all, are all these stories that you tell real? Um, they're less than, than real. They all have a basis. In fact, they all have a basis. Um, but we added conversation, for example, to make it interesting in mm -hmm. order to explain a point. Um, there are stories about the KSR Air Force Base when the Cold War was going on, and we describe people as to a uniform, the guy in the blue suit, for example, uh, but we don't give the name. However, in that same story, we do mention the names of actual people who still live in the community. Those people whose names we're using, um, we're happy to have that happen. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I changed a name just for the heck of it. But the stories have, a, as I said, have a purpose. The idea was to ch talk, chat, something about the law. And then we tried to make a story peninsula-wide. Something happened on the western end, something happened on the eastern end. The upper peninsula is uh, geographically the same size uh, lengthwise as the lower peninsula. If you measure from the Sioux to uh, Ironwood, you're going to find the same distance from Monroe to Mackinac City. But it's skinny, and it's narrow, and it's different. And there's always somebody who wants to make the Upper Peninsula a separate state. Um, we probably could last uh, as a separate state with the mining and the lumbering and the fishing. Um, but there are characters here who are far uh, different than the kind of characters you would find in the Lower Peninsula. We talk differently about the Lower Peninsula people. They're fudgies. They come here to buy fudge at Mackinac Island. Or they're lopers, as opposed to upers from downstate. Where there are, uh, they are uh, uh, trolls because they live below the bridge. Absolutely. <laughs> so the, the people are independent here, very patriotic, uh, very loyal. Uh, they, they have loyalty to the armed forces especially. Um, communities like Antonagon uh, have multiple uh, soldiers in the um, military. Uh, and there was a, a big school We had Native Tom, stop please for a second. We had tremendous lightning. So hold on for just a second. Okay, go ahead. We have Native American soldiers, and there was a, a, a terrible circumstance where the governor of the state of Michigan didn't recognize that a, a Native American soldier had died in Afghanistan, and the flag wasn't lowered, and there was a, a tremendous bruja. Everybody in the Upper Peninsula was upset about that, not just the Native American tribe. Uh, the flag was lowered. Everybody in small towns, it is 
theorized, everybody knows everybody. Well, that's sort of true here. So you can say, when you're picking a jury, for example, you were my client. I'm not sure you can be fair and impartial. And sometimes the client says, yes, I can't be. You weren't such a great lawyer. <laughs> um, but you, you recognize people over and over again because there are only 600 registered jurors in Alger County. And after you've had five trials there, you've been through 600 registered jurors several times. A friend of mine who is a, a writer, columnist, and uh, uh, author in Ireland talks about uh, the fact that uh, Ireland is a very small community, that everybody knows everybody else, and uh, that there's and gossip is the... Uh, is the coin of the realm, but so it's it's and that's got, they've got more population in Ireland than there is in the Upper Peninsula. So I would imagine it's obviously true that a lot of people do know what everybody else is doing. A lot of people do know, and that's helpful when you're looking for a witness. Mm-hmm. Somebody sees it, no matter how long it took, you'll find somebody saw something that was helpful. Tom, I'm going to put to you the same question that has been put to me over and over and over again. When I was in law school, the women I were dating would invariably ask the, the following question. How can you defend a guilty person? And you, you talk about the, their right to a fair trial, their uh, happiness, uh, that you're doing a good job, you know, you're, you know and all that. But that doesn't really answer their question. What do you what do you say when that comes to? And I know you must have heard that. Sure, the the guilty is not decided by the lawyers, and it's not decided by the witnesses. It's decided by the jury. So there is something truthful about uh, we don't know whether you're guilty or not until the jury says so. For example, the gentleman says, "I did shoot him." And I meant to. On a certain set of facts, that certainly sounds like guilt. Well, but if it's self-defense when he did the shooting, and certainly meant, you know, to stop him from killing him, um, that, that makes it different. The, the difficulty is when you somebody has a defendant theory. How is it that I might not have committed that crime? I'm charged with speeding. I was on the way to the hospital. I'm charged with assault battery. I'm, I'm self-defending. There is different ways of looking at that set of circumstances. It's the defending lawyer's job and his investigator's position to find a state and set of facts that will lead the jury to see that there is another side to that coin. I've never seen a coin with just one side. <laughs> Does that satisfy uh, your friends who who asked that question? And no, <laughs> no, but they're not satisfied until they suddenly need a lawyer. Ah, so and true. Certainly, they they make all the lawyer jokes in the world until it's time for them to have to have one. Then they're grateful. Remember, remember back in the '60s. You're you're probably old enough to remember that uh, one of the great bumper stickers was uh, "Be a hippie." The next time uh, you're in trouble, or no, no, um, the next time you're in trouble, call a hippie. 
And I thought, you know, it was a self-defense for the cops. Well, there's a certain truth to that, though. There is a certain truth to that. There's a bumper sticker here that says, if you don't like the lumbering industry, use plastic toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> there was a Hollywood actress who, was, who made a, a, a splash uh, recently telling people about how they can uh, use less toilet paper. And it was it's, it just gross to talk about it, but it was... You know, it's it's we're all into ecology now, but the but the Upper Peninsula has a special spirit which you began to describe. It's a quest. It's loyalty. It's is it individualism, individual responsibility? What is it? It's based in, in individualism because uh, often um, you are isolated a long way away from the grocery store. Um, our clients are rarely within uh, the city limits. We represent people who are 100 miles away. So when the lawyer complains that he, he got late to court and had to be there at 9 o'clock, we had to drive three and a half hours to be there at 9 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, individualism is they, the people here burn wood instead of oil, and they think that that's a proper thing to do. Uh, living green is what people here have been doing for hundreds of years. Um, the, they're independent in the sense that um, politics plays a part here. Uh, people have uh, Republican and Democratic positions, but they really vote for the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend uh, is a representative. Um, he's of the wrong party. Mm-hmm. But I vote for him. <laughs> uh, I don't vote for the party. Mm-hmm. Um, I I want this man to be the prosecutor. He's a good, honest, um, judgment-oriented, fine individual. It's not that he's out to hang people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are interested in uh, nature. They're interested in wildlife. They're interested in mining and lumbering. Um, if you don't have a position of employment, um, then you have to go out and self-find something mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to make a living. And people here are very good at that. And so when you're selecting a jury, you make sure, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a woods worker. Well, I have an outdoor furnace, you know, and I know how hard it is to make a cord of wood. And they say, well, what's a cord of wood? And I say, well, a cord of wood to me is, a plywood board, four feet by four <laughs> feet by eight feet. Plywood on there, neatly cut, four feet high. Mm-hmm. And then, and you'll talk with the juror about it. Mm-hmm. And he'll say, well, how many cords does it take to heat your house? I say ten. He says, face cords? That's a third of a real cord. <laughs> or real cords. Yeah. And if I say it's real cords, we have a rapport. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's hard to do that in Detroit. Yeah, well, it's a different language. It's a different set of uh, cultural experiences and cultural language uh, wherever you go. But it's true. It's true. Tom, unfortunately, we're out of time, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I have uh, I loved reading your book. I was fascinated to see. Uh, I didn't see my name in it, which is good. <laughs> 
I hope that one of the pseudonyms for beastly prosecutors, federal prosecutors, did not in, uh, originally come from something I did. But um, we did share uh, the other night a very uh, good program where both of us were speaking in on behalf of a, of a mutual friend who was a prosecutor who had served for 38 years with distinction uh, in his county. And I think that um, from my... From what happened, what you said, I took it that uh, you could be uh, tough opponents in the courtroom, but good friends outside. Absolutely. Thank you. We've been talking to Tom Castleman, trial lawyer extraordinaire, uh, author of the book, I Talk, You Walk. It's available um, wherever fine books are sold. I can't, uh, for this station... Uh, advertise it, but I certainly can tell you that I enjoyed it. The name of our program is With Respect. We're on every Sunday morning at 11 and every Thursday morning at 10. Until then, next time, remember our mantra, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. Music